Hi, I'm your guest host, Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. This weekend, Chinese tennis star Peng Shui emerged after three weeks of total silence. She'd gone dark after making allegations of sexual assault against a former vice premier of China. Censors took it down within the hour, and Peng Shui disappeared. Within China, any mention of Peng Shui was removed from social media and public discourse. Even other tennis players who supported her online faced censorship. Meanwhile, outside of China, people began wondering what was happening. The Women's Tennis Association and other players like Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams started asking, where is Peng Shui? That question has become a rallying cry on social media as a hashtag. And it's opened up a bigger discussion about what happens when sports collide with geopolitics. We don't like human rights violations. We don't like China kidnapping essentially our citizens. We don't like them mistreating vast swaths of their own population. But we like sports. So if China's willing to host the sports, we'll watch the sports. That's Kahal Kelly, a sports columnist with The Globe and Mail. He's on the show to explain how the sports world has responded to the situation around Peng Shui and how this will all affect the upcoming Beijing Olympics. This is The Decibel. Kahal, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me. So... This story is, it's still unfolding, but what did we learn about Peng Shui's whereabouts over this past weekend? Well, a lot happened, uh, much of it in a kind of Keystone Cops fashion, where the WTAs, the Women Tennis Association, demands that China produce Peng Shui, eventually began to be picked up by other sports organizations and then by world leaders, which is the point at which you would imagine China started to get worried about it. And then she turned up on the social media feeds of the editor-in-chief of a Communist Party newspaper, out and about in public, doing, you know, as you do, being recorded, having dinner, where people talk about the date so that you can date stamp it, and then being seen at a tennis tournament. When that didn't turn out to be enough, uh, she then did a half-hour video chat with IOC President Thomas Bach and other officials in which they she described herself as safe, and said that she wanted privacy, and Bach described her as relaxed. So I I think at this point, the WTA is not dropping the ball on this. The WTA is now pushing for a full investigation into what started this, which is an accusation of sex assault against a top official. But I think it's probably the end of this saga as a cause celeb. And just to go back to the response, how were these these interactions, these videos that were released, how were these viewed by by people? I think most people would say Thomas Bach is not everybody's favorite person, but I think most people would concede he is an honest broker. I don't know if the general public is going to get a chance to judge her responses. I think what they've done is effectively neutered this as a, you know, an enormous story. It's still going to be a story, but as a sort of story that leads newscasts, it's probably done. You talked about the, the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association. They've threatened to pull out of a, a huge deal with China over concerns for, for Peng's safety and, and treatment. They're not satisfied with, with these videos, but what leverage do they actually have with China? 
there'd be money on the one hand. They stage a major championship there called the China Open. So we're talking millions and millions of dollars, which I don't imagine matters all that much to China. It would matter a lot to the WTA. Mm. But what I think it is, is moral suasion. Like, I mean, this is, if you want to put the focus on, on someone in a very bright way that catches a lot of imaginations, sports is a great way to do it. And especially with the Beijing Olympics coming up, this is the kind of uh, scrutiny that China doesn't appreciate, which is how you can see, like, I mean, in most cases, you would imagine they would not have bent at all. They've bent a fair bit here and obviously brought Bach in as an intermediary to try and quell this. So uh, the WTA's leverage, it's less than they had two days ago when Pang had not been produced and we didn't know where she was. But it's still, I, th I think, considerable. They can keep banging this drum. And of course, it suits them because it's it talks directly to their membership. Like, I mean, this is a grassroots up movement. This didn't start with the WTA. This started with individual players like Naomi Osaka mm -hmm. wondering aloud, where is Pong? And then her bosses picked up that chance. So I think that will continue on. And of course, this is this is not the first time that we've seen Chinese politics clash with sports figures as well. Uh, the NBA is, is, of course, another example, and, and they were eager to put that behind them. Is the... Yeah, that's one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, eager. Uh, well, do you see the, the WTA's response as, as any different? Or is this going to change anything? Well, the NBA folded up like a cheap tent. As, you know, as soon as like, it was like a soft breeze made the NBA collapse. And this is when one of their own, one of their highly touted executives just kind of waded in very tepidly into the free Hong Kong debate. Daryl Morey, the former GM of the Houston Rockets. The NBA just uh, just wiped their hands of Morey at that point, And he had to issue almost immediately a groveling apology. Uh, the NBA did likewise in order to protect their business interests. So you would say that the WTA has shown a lot more spine than the NBA. In this instance, they're not backing down. But on the other hand, the WTA doesn't really need China. China is great, but they could just move that uh, tournament to the Middle East or, you know, it's quite easy for them. So uh, I'll credit them for spine. Is it going to change anything? Well, I think no. And once the Beijing Olympics comes in and sports washes all their problems away for three weeks, we really will have forgotten it happened. You recently wrote in, in one of your uh, recent pieces over the weekend about how, how China has kind of bungled its response to the situation, but also that that bungled response doesn't really matter. Why doesn't it matter? It doesn't matter because it worked. Like, I mean, we look at those videos and the ham-fisted way in which they're recorded. Like in one instance, obviously it's no good to just show a video of her. You also have to timestamp it somehow. But how do you do that and make it look natural? So in the video in the restaurant, as the camera tracks into the restaurant, it stops at a cleaning chart where this is since SARS, they've always had, they have to write down every time they cleaned a restaurant and focuses on the date and then moves on. And then during the conversation, the date is brought up several times. But of course, you know, they're not used to having to sell their version of the truth. They just tell people what the truth is. But it has been effective. They are at least uh, responsive. Like they see that the first one isn't going over too well. So then they're like, well, let's get Thomas Bach on the phone. And let's clear this up once and for all. For most people, I don't think that proves much. Feng Shui could still be under enormous duress. Who knows, you know, what sort of situation she finds herself in. But it's proven effective to the extent that if she says she's safe, how do you prove she's not? Let's maybe take a little bit of a wider view now to look at China from a wider perspective. 
Many countries, including Canada, have have recently taken issue with uh, with human rights violations within China. Um, of course, the obvious example for us is is the two Michaels who were detained over there, mm. but also the concern about the country's uh, Uyghur population, threats against Taiwan, situation in Hong Kong. I guess if if all of those things are not inciting a response from the global community against China, what's the likelihood that a situation like this will? Is this any any different? The way I try to describe this is this: this is the conflict between what we believe and what we like. Usually, what we believe and what we like match up. Like, I believe that flower arranging is the greatest human activity, and I like flower arranging. But this is an instance so often in sports we now find ourselves in, and what we believe is that we don't like human rights violations. We don't like China kidnapping essentially our citizens. We don't like them mistreating vast swaths of their own population. But we like sports. So if China's willing to host the sports, we'll watch the sports. That compromise is being made constantly now, and I don't know that it's anything has changed. You don't see sports viewership dipping off the radar because of some scandal that has embroiled the NFL or the Olympics or the World Cup. The World Cup is about to be staged in a country that essentially used slave labor. Will people watch the World Cup? Absolutely, it'll be the most watched thing in the world next year. So this is the conflict between what we believe and what we like, and what we like always wins. The only thing I'll, I'll just push back with is there's a Chinese athlete here that's involved. So with these disappearances, I guess, within China, does that change anything? It's important to note that Peng Shui hadn't played tennis in nearly a couple of years. Like we're talking essentially about a former tennis player. So it's not like she would be missed off the stage. And she was a top-ranked doubles player, but never a top-top singles player. I mean, that is the power of sports. The power, an athlete's power lies in the fact that she or he appears on your television regularly. You expect to see them, and unlike any other sort of entertainer, if they go away, you start to wonder, well, where is she? She doesn't have that power in China anymore because she doesn't play tennis. This all comes, of course, just a few months before the Beijing Olympics. They're set to host、mm-hmm. the 2022 Olympic Games in February. What effect will this have on the upcoming Olympic Games in Beijing? I think it's a tone setter. I don't know if it's going to have any concrete effects.、Uh, people will write it, of course. But there's always the question, as you quite rightly point out, this question of is this just us talking to ourselves? Like, is this North American and Western journalists having a conversation with ourselves about China that never? Penetrates China in any way, shape, or form, or or the Chinese consciousness. I think the Chinese wanted to go in on a an up feeling that things were going to be work out, things were going to be fun. They want to have a light, breezy Olympics. It's going to be a lockdown Olympics. It's not going to be very much fun, but all that matters is that it looks like fun on television. And I'm not sure that's possible anymore. I think what you're going to get is a drumbeat of stories for two months. Where people start discussing why are we going? Should we have boycotted it? Why did we give it to them in the first place?、Uh, are we morally compromised by going? The answer to which is yes.、Uh, should we go? We still go, and the answer to which is also yes. But that's what I think the Chinese have gotten now through this situation. They've gotten a, a doer Olympics in which people go somewhat unwillingly. There has been some talk of boycotting the Beijing Olympics. Is that a movement that you think is actually going to gain traction with any countries? No, I don't think so. If it was going to happen, as diminished as their、uh, status is in the world, it would be led by America. You've already seen them de facto say they were not doing it by 
announcing that they're considering a diplomatic boycott, whatever that means. It means that, you know, Joe Biden won't go. Uh, I think it's the voices now are too strong in favor of the athletes and what the athletes think and feel. And while they wouldn't like to voice it out in public lest they be yelled at, no, there's not a single athlete doesn't want to go because this is what they train for. This is what they do. This is the ultimate for them. Why are sports so bad at these political issues? Seems like we can't really deal with the two of those two things together. I mean, sports is an entertainment business. Sports just wants to happy, happy, fun, fun, joy, joy. That's all sports wants to do. Sports wants to seat you in front of a couch for two or three hours and extract all your money from you. Uh, they're ill-equipped, as are most entertainment businesses, to tackle big issues because two things are happening at once. They may have constituencies within their ranks that want to see change, that want to see things dealt with. And then on the other side, you've got the, everybody else including the ones who want to see change, who also expect to strip mine enormous amounts of cash out of the business, which means they have to appeal to all people. Those two things can't survive together. You see individual athletes making enormous change in sports, but you never see sports organizations making much change because their primary focus, which can always must go unspoken, is making money, and they don't care who they make it from. Uh, they're not charities. They're, you know, they're not activist organizations. They're conglomerates. And in the same way that, you know, Gulf oil is bad at politics, so is the NBA. And then I guess just lastly from that, how does that affect sports standing in our culture? Like there's some kind of disconnect there if we see that they, these sports institutions cannot handle the, these kind of issues that are, are really moral issues for a lot of us. The analogy I like to draw is the NFL. Ten years ago, uh, the NFL was proved, essentially, if you let your child play football and they play it long enough, uh, it will markedly increase the risk that they will die young. So you told people, football kills people. You're watching people on TV, some of whom will die from doing what they're just like watching. It's like watching Christians v. Lions in some ways. So you told people that. People accepted that. And yet they have continued to watch football. Uh, actually, football has increased in popularity. Network television only exists in America because of football. If people don't care if the athletes are dying as a result of the sport, I don't think there's anything you could show them or tell them that would convince them that they should stop watching sports. It goes back to this idea of what we believe versus what we like. And we like sports. We like sports just about better than we like anything else. But I mean, that's a cynical perspective on, you know, it's understanding what it is. I would just say, it, does it affect people's, uh, how people perceive sports? Look at the numbers. I mean, they're, they're running polls every day. Those polls are called TV ratings. And TV ratings aren't going down. Kahal, thank you so much for, for joining us today to talk about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. Michal Stein edited this episode. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Kahal Kelly. You can find more of his work at theglobeandmail.com. You can also get in touch with us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at MainikaRW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.